0: Matthew hasn't committed murder or adultery. He hasn't taken great pains to cover up dark deeds, yet he needs gentle reproof. His company is being downsized, his position is under review, and Matthew is fretting. The future is uncertain, and jobs in his field are slim pickings. Around the house, his countenance reveals his anxiety. Once, Vibrant dinner conversations have been replaced by long sighs and longer silences. When his wife asks why, Matthew says he just needs room to think. He doesn't see his spiritual slide, but he is slipping, gradually yet steadily, into a world of worry, a captivating, mind-numbing exercise of rolling over each possibility to consider all angles and outcomes as if analyzing his circumstances and controlling them are the same thing. Matthew talks about faith and trusting God, but his comments seem thin and obligatory. A denial of the true battle within. Sleepless nights tell the real story. Awake and staring into the darkness, Matthew's imagination runs wild. There, he is unemployed, the house is foreclosed on, his family is begging in the streets. A bead of sweat forms on his brow. Matthew lies alone in the dark like a man with no God. Matthew needs understanding from a loving wife who sympathizes with his trial. She must pray for him and encourage him in his efforts to lead and provide for his family. But he also needs something else from her. He needs her to confront his sin. He needs someone who knows him and loves him enough to carefully direct truth to his God-denying worry. He needs someone within the home who can both stand on God's promises and speak them with loving conviction. There seems to be, as I mentioned before I officially got started here, a lot of confusion regarding the role of a wife and how she should go about confronting her husband in sin. How does submission play into that? How does respect play into that? How does she confront his sin? while at the same time, actually submit to him and while being respectful toward him as well. The topic of wives confronting husbands tends to lead to many questions. So I'm going to do my best to answer those questions tonight. However, I may not actually answer your question. So if I don't, that's what the small groups are for. If you have concerns about some of the things that I'm going to talk about, like I've said in other topics, like I know that sometimes some of these things can be a little bit sensitive. And so if I don't come at it from just the right careful angle, sometimes things can be communicated in a way that I didn't intend or you understood them in a way that I didn't intend. So if that happens, please do talk to your small group leader or come and see me. I am not offended by questions. I love your questions, so don't ever feel like, I can't talk to Yvonne. I need you to come talk to me because I won't know what you're thinking and I won't know how to correct it if you don't tell me. So I really do want to hear from you guys as well. So anyways, the Bible makes many references to the importance of confronting other believers in their sin. So we need to know what that means and we need to know how to do it. Clearly, God views this as an important aspect of the Christian life, both in being confronted and in confronting others. We need to be willing to be confronted as well as being willing to do the confrontation. And last week we talked about conflict and all that was a part of that. And I'm not going to take time to review tonight. So if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen to it, because these actually kind of go together in our desire to confront. Because if we are shying away from conflict or we are responding wrongly in that, our confrontation is also going to be sinful. So I want you to listen to these verses really quickly just to hear what scripture says about this important topic. So Matthew eighteen fifteen, we all know Matthew 18, right? So it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Luke seventeen three, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 1 Timothy 5.20, it says those, so it's referring to elders here, so elders who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And then Galatians six one says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So obviously, believers... Should practice confronting one another in their sin. Since the majority of marriages within the church, majority of marriages within the church include two believers, these principles need to be practiced in marriage as well because we are husband and wife, but we are also brother and sister in the church. And so these principles that we're going to be talking about as we confront one another need to be practiced within the marriage. And sometimes, ladies, we as wives have the greatest insight into our husbands' wrestles. So we are the ones that's, that oftentimes this falls to because we know the areas that they are sinful just as what? They know the areas that we are sinful. So this really needs to be working both ways. But, of course, I'm only talking to ladies, so we are only going to be talking to you guys tonight as far as how you Either respond to confrontation or how you confront your husband. As we begin, I want to start by considering why it is important for believers to confront one another in their sin. I think one of the reasons we fail to respond rightly when we are confronted by our husbands and why we fail to confront our husbands in a biblical manner is because we fail to understand the devastating reality of sin. Bottom line, we do not Understand how horrible sin is. And so we are not driven then to be confronted so that we can get rid of the sin in our own lives. And we are not driven to confront others in their sin because we really don't see it as being as horrible as it really is. Sin is our greatest enemy, not circumstances, not people, not trials not persecution not betrayal not financial ruin not disease not abuse or any other hardship or heartache or even devastating experience none of those things are as serious as our sin and we have got to keep that in mind and i think weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks ago at the beginning of our study I I focused on that a little bit because we have to realize our sin is so important that we need to get rid of that before we try and escape the difficult circumstances because our sin is way, way more destructive than anything else in our lives. Only sin keeps us from God. Only sin keeps us from eternal life. Only sin condemns a person to hell. Only sin incurs the wrath of God. Therefore, sin is our greatest enemy. We need to hate how it harms our relationships with our Savior, and we need to hate how it harms other people's relationship with their Savior. We have to understand how serious it is. And taking three minutes to say this is not enough. You guys have to go home, and you have to memorize these verses, and you have to meditate on them, you have to think about it. Because if you, for one, if you don't love your Savior, because we need to be doing what? Giving all glory and honor to God. That is our motive. So in our desire to bring glory to God, we need to then hate what he hates. And what does he hate? He hates sin. And so because he hates sin and we hate sin, we are striving to get rid of it in our own lives, and we are striving to help those that we love also get rid of it in their lives as well. So we're going to head right to our outline. A, capital A there, understanding the severity and gravity of sin. And again, I'm just going to go through this really, really quickly because I just want to kind of build a little bit of a foundation here. So number one, God hates sin. And just a couple of verses about this. And there's way more, but just really quick little nuggets here. Proverbs eight thirteen, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Obviously, that's God speaking. Psalm 5, 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God is perfectly holy and completely set apart from all sin. He hates sin. And then Habakkuk one thirteen, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So number one is God hates sin. That is why we should also hate it. So number two. Sin cost Jesus his life. The reason why Christ went to the cross was to take God's wrath in our place so that we didn't have to bear that. And why do we have wrath upon us? Because the punishment for our sin is God's wrath upon us. So 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. And then number 3, sin causes a separation in our relationship with God. So obviously we know that sin has entirely separated God from unbelievers, but even as believers as we sin, it doesn't it doesn't um, separate us in the sense of salvation we don't lose our salvation as a believer when we sin however it separates that that communion that we have with him that closeness in the relationship that we have with him so isaiah 59 2 says this but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear number four Sin will cause us to have shame before God. So 1 John 2.28 says this, Now little children, abide in him. And remember, abide means uh, to, to remain with him. You could say to keep his commandments, to be obedient to him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We do not want to be in sin at the coming of our Savior because we do not want to face that sin. We don't want, or that shame. We don't want to displease Him. That's where the shame comes from. So, number five, sin gives the devil an opportunity. So, Ephesians 4 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Our sinfulness, you know how it is, when you're already in sin, what happens? We are far more inclined to be tempted toward further sin. We do not want to give the devil an opportunity. So this is just a very tiny little bit, a couple of points talking about the importance of sin. There's way, way, way more that we could add to this. But this is kind of just in a little nutshell here. Sin hinders the believer from becoming mature. It hinders the believer from serving well in the church. It hinders the believer's relationship with family members and others in the church. So what does sin do? Sin ultimately isolates. When we are living in sin, what happens to our relationships? Think of first with our husbands. If we are living with a sinful attitude toward them, immediately what happens? well, we really don't want to have a whole lot to do with them. And so it has this isolating effect on us. It does the same thing with our children, and it does the same thing within the church at large. And we as husband and wives are part of the church. So if we are sinning against one another, that is going to affect the church. Sin harms the individual and the church body as a whole. We must learn to hate it in ourselves And love others enough to help restore them to holy living. And this, of course, like I already said, includes our husbands. Remember what Titus says. Older women are to teach younger women to do what? Love their husbands. So it is my responsibility to stand up here and tell you one of the ways that you love your husband is confronting him in his sin. Because you know him. Probably better than anybody else. You have a very special, important, and privileged place in his life to be able to speak the truth of Scripture. And we're going to see how to do that because we can't, just you just don't go confronting your husband's sin willy-nilly. No. There are certain things that we have to think about, certain ways that we do this in order for it to be in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. So, our passage that we're going to look at today is Galatians six one, which also is your memory verse. So you can either look at it on your memory verse card or turn to it. I always prefer you to turn to the references in your Bible. And I know many people now use their phones, and there's a place for that. But there is something about paper Bibles that helps you to remember, especially you young gals that are just used to your phones and your iPads and all this kind of stuff. There is... There is Actually, studies that show that it is helpful to remembering when you can turn the page, when you can remember where it is on the page. So it is important that you look into your paper Bibles as well. No condemnation if you only have a phone. <laughs> Just saying. So, okay, Galatians 6 1. Brethren, even if any is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So be on your outline, requirements for confronting a believer caught in sin. So our text begins by saying, brethren. So immediately we know who Paul is addressing here. He is addressing believers in the church. So he says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, meaning if someone has been overtaken by sin, others who are walking by the Spirit have a responsibility to help that person forsake the sin and turn back to Spirit living or righteous living. That is what the the spiritual person is to help restore the one who is sinning. So our text says, if anyone is caught... So there are two ways actually that the word caught can be interpreted and actually both seem appropriate in this context. So John MacArthur explains it like this. He always has great definitions if I haven't said that before. So caught may imply that the person was actually seen committing the trespass, indicating there was no doubt about his guilt. So that's the first way. But the Greek word also, excuse me, but the Greek verb also allows for the idea of the man's being caught by the trespass itself. So the first is to be caught or found in sin, to be discovered in sin, like, oh my goodness, you're in the middle of sinning and you got caught, somebody saw you. So that's the first one. And then the second one is to be overtaken by the temptation. The word trespass means sin, but it was also used in the context of falling or stumbling. To be overtaken by the sin indicates that the sin wasn't premeditated, but rather the believer didn't have their guard up. Because their guard was down when the temptation came, they gave into it, so they were caught by the snare of sin. So you guys see the two differences, but really, in this context, they they both apply. So number one, you must be spiritual. So our text says, you who are spiritual. So he's talking to a specific group of people here. Well, what does that mean if you're spiritual? So this was not referring to the pastors or the elders or the teachers in the church who are considered to be the spiritually mature or spiritual giants because it's easy to look at that verse and go, Am I spiritual? Like, is he talking to me? Well, I know I sin, so probably I'm not the spiritual one. That probably is like, you know, the elders. They're the spiritual ones. But in this passage, it is talking to all of us who would be walking in the Spirit. So it was written to the brethren, all those in the church who walked with God, living in the spirit practicing the fruit of uh, living in the spirit practicing the fruit of the spirit that had just been mentioned a few verses earlier if you remember earlier in galatians which we'll look at that in just a second the spiritual person is in contrast to the fleshly person that lives in the deeds of the flesh that Paul also describes a few verses earlier. So we have the spiritual person, and to be the spiritual person is simply to be walking in obedience to the truth of Scripture. So the other person is the fleshly person that is living according to their fleshly sinfulness. And so if you are living according to your flesh, you should not be the one that is confronting somebody else in their sin. But if you are striving to live according to the truth of Scripture, you are considered the, spirit, the spiritual one that he's referring to here. So Galatians 5, so this is a few verses earlier in the previous chapter. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So this should be our goal, to be walking according to the Spirit. So, John MacArthur again, he says this It should be noted that whereas maturity is relative depending on one's progressing growth, spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. At any point in the life of a Christian, from the moment of his salvation to his glorification, he is either spiritual, walking in the spirit, or he is fleshly walking in the deeds of the flesh. So listen to what he continues to say here, because I think you need to understand the difference between spirituality and maturity. So he says, maturity is the cumulative effect of the times of spirituality. But any believer at any point in his growth toward Christ's likeness can be a spiritual believer who helps a sinful believer who has fallen to the flesh. So guess what that means? You can be the one to confront your husband. If you are walking by the Spirit, which means what's going to be coming out of you if you're walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, you are qualified in that to be able to confront your husband. Now, of course, the more you walk by the Spirit, the more mature you're going to become, as John MacArthur explained. But if you are living according to your flesh, and we know we all wrestle with this, right? This is the whole war going on. When we are living according to our flesh, that is not the time to confront our husbands. So if you are wrestling with a sinful heart toward your husband, you had better clean that up. You had better repent first before you go to confront him in his sin. So spiritual is used here in contrast. So this is interesting as well. So spiritual is used here in contrast to the legalist who was only concerned with obeying the letter of the law. So if you remember what the book of Galatians was written for, uh, Paul was confronting the false teachers who were saying justification was not by faith, but it was by following the law it was by works so that that theme kind of travels all the way through and chapters three and four are really more for justification and then chapters five and six really focus more on sanctification but either way our justification and our sanctification are according to faith in christ not according to our good works we are not justified saved because of our good works And so this is one of the things that is... And I think it just helps to give our our passage a little bit fuller meaning as we consider the legalistic aspect being addressed here. So the legalist is only concerned about the outward actions, the behavior, the external adherence to the standard, whereas the one who is spiritual is concerned for the heart condition of the person in sin. See, the legalist is the person that is living out of the flesh, whereas the spiritual one is the one who's living according to the Spirit by faith in Christ. So Warren Wiersbe says this, The legalist is always harder on other people than he is on himself. This is a very concerning situation when you think about what is being commanded here. When we are commanded to confront other believers in their sin, we best not have a legalistic attitude that views ourselves as superior to other people because we have a standard that they're not living up to our standard. So I interrupted his quote here, so let me start again. The legalist is always harder on other people than he is on himself, but the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others that he might be able to help others. In this paragraph, Paul was really contrasting the way the legalist would deal with the erring brother and the way the spiritual man would deal with him. The spiritual man would seek to restore the brother in love while the legalist would exploit the brother. So that's what we really want to avoid when it comes to confronting other people and particularly our husbands. And I would say, as wives... Sometimes we are very, very good legalists. And we actually become a lot like the Pharisees because we have lists of things in our minds that our husbands need to be doing that you aren't going to find in Scripture necessarily. And then when they cross our standard, when they cross the line of what is acceptable to us, then all of a sudden we say they're sinning. That is not the attitude that we need to have. We need to have a humble heart and a humble attitude. When a wife confronts her husband, the first thing she needs to do is consider her own heart. Is she truly concerned for her husband because he is sinning against God? Or is she arrogant and proud, simply wanting to point out to him how he has failed? What is her attitude? Is it one of true restoration Wanting him to be restored to his relationship with the Savior? Or is it one of condemnation? You have failed, and let me point that out to you, because you are making my life a mess and I don't like it. As we consider the attitude we should have toward our husbands as we confront them in their sin, uh, Dave Harvey, now remember from that book I have talked about the entire year, When Sinners Say I Do? So I've pulled again from that little book, um, from some of the questions that he's, he's got here. So he helps us to evaluate our motives based on a few questions. Yeah, they are questions. So are we confronting them in a manner that is spiritual, confronting our husbands in a manner that is spiritual, consistent with scripture, or are we confronting them with a hypocritical attitude of the legalist who simply wants him to adhere to our accepted standard? So here is what Dave Harvey, the first question, so small a on your outline. Have I prayed for God's wisdom and acknowledged my need for his help in serving my husband? See, a lot of times we just go barging right in. We don't stop to really consider, stop to think. If we're going to pray, what does that mean? It means we have to think. We have to consider. We have to contemplate before we speak. So, have I prayed? Ephesians 6.18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And this verse right here is interesting as well, John 16.8. Because it's Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes and he says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do we have the power to convict our husbands? No. We bring the truth through the the speaking of the word of God. But who does the convicting? The Holy Spirit does the convicting. and We need to keep that in mind. We are not on par with the Holy Spirit. But sometimes in the messiness of marriage, we begin to get our role with the Holy Spirit a bit confused in our mind. And we think we should be bringing the conviction, but it's not us. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction through the word that we share. So B, are my observations based upon patterns of behavior or merely a single incident? So Proverbs 10.12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife but love covers all transgressions. And 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And this is another question that often comes up. Well, when am I supposed to confront my husband? How often am I supposed to confront him? Well, this little question that he asks here is very helpful because he says, Are my observations based upon patterns of behavior or merely a single incident? Girls, If it is a single incident, overlook that. Give grace for that. But again, if it's really offensive to us, we may not want to give grace to that, but we need to give grace for that. When there's ongoing patterns of unrepentant sin, that's when we need to go in and confront. Because to just go in after every little sin, how would you feel if somebody was always after you? on all your little sins, we'd want to kill them. So let's not be that to our husbands. So C, am I content to address one area of concern, even if I am aware of several? This is hard because sometimes it's like, for goodness sakes, all I see is sin everywhere I look. And probably that's not necessarily a right assessment probably there's a little bit of a legalistic, hypocritical, proud and arrogant attitude going on in us that we need to be careful over. But Ephesians 4:32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So keeping in mind this idea of being kind, of being tender-hearted toward our husbands, let's not overwhelm them. Just take one thing at a time and pray about it, consider it, and let the Holy Spirit do the conviction, not us. D, am I committed to saying only what needs to be said? Oh, wow. This can be a hard one, especially if we're one that has many words. Just keep in mind, with many words, transgression is unavoidable, so don't use many words. But, okay, so here is what Dave Harvey says. He says, when trying to bring a spouse to a point of godly conviction over sin, too often we overwhelm him with a great volume of information or litany of examples. This is a soul you are slicing open. Go very slowly. Cut very gently. We shouldn't go in and just rip our husbands apart. And always be thinking: How would I want to be approached? How do I want Him to approach me in my sin? Well, I don't want Him to just overwhelm me and be unkind. Proverbs five twenty, excuse me, Proverbs twenty five eleven says: "Like apples of gold in setting of silver, is a word spoken in right circumstances." We need to consider that. And remember our verse from a couple weeks ago, Ephesians 4.29 as well. We want to give grace. We want to speak in the right moment as well. So E, am I prepared to humbly offer an observation rather than an assumption or conclusion? We get ourselves into a whole lot of trouble by going in and assuming something and then based on our assumption, trying to confront them in that. Because oftentimes our assumptions can be wrong. So we probably need to draw them out to understand what is going on. So, And I know some of these verses we've hit on other weeks. So if you're noticing that we're kind of bringing up the same verses, I want you to think about the fact of how many applications can come from one little verse. And when we read Proverbs, a lot of times we read like a whole proverb all in one morning. How how can we even focus? There's so much there, especially when week after week we're bringing up the same verse with a little different application. Well, we can take one proverb and really meditate on that and focus and think about all the different aspects of how we can apply that truth to our life. We'd probably do a whole lot better doing that than just ripping through the whole chapter at once. Anyways, did I read the verse? I didn't read the verse, did I? Okay, (laughs) let's read the verse. Proverbs 20, verse 5. A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. We need to draw out their heart. And that isn't going to happen if we are acting out of our flesh, being accusatory, or, or using condemnation against them. It's just not going to. We need to be gentle. We need to be tender-hearted. We need to be kind. One of the reasons we need to evaluate our motives when we confront our husband is because our goal is to be used of God to help bring restoration in their relationship with the Lord. That's the goal, right? Is for them to be restored to their relationship with Christ. So, number two on your outline, the goal is to bring restoration. So, our text says, restore such a one. Restore was a word that was used to describe the mending of fishing nets or setting broken bones. In our passage, Galatians 6.1, restore means to mend, and it is used metaphorically of the restoration by those who are spiritual. Remember, there's our word, being spiritual. So you are being spiritual to the one who was overtaken in the trespass. Such a one being as a dislocated member of the spiritual body. So this is kind of the metaphor going on here. The tense is the continuous present suggesting the necessity for patience and perseverance in the process. So this is the idea as we are striving to restore somebody who's sinning, is we need to be patient and we need to persevere in that. And that doesn't always mean that we're talking, 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 because then what have we become? Proverbs again, the contentious wife, the drip, drip, drip. Persevere in what? Persevere in prayer. Persevere before the Lord. Considering how we can love our husbands well and point them carefully to the truth without being fleshly and sinful. And as soon as we become impatient, what just happened? We are no longer the spiritual one. So we have just disqualified ourselves from being the one to confront them. As I was studying this, I was like, oh, my word. (laughs) Like, am I ever able to do this? (laughs) Because it seems like there's just so many places to slip off and, and how easy it is to sin in so many different areas, especially when we are offended by their sin. We have to be so careful to keep the mind of Christ that loves, that forgives, that desires to restore that relationship. So Dave Harvey says this, So often, couples can treat confrontation like a hand grenade. Pop the pin, let it fly, and run for cover. That's one of the reasons I like his book, because he's funny. Anyways, but biblical reproof, this is him continuing, but biblical reproof is not some kind of commando raid. It's careful, committed, surgical care for the soul. A good surgeon is committed not only to the operation, but to post-operative care as well. God's purpose for reproof is not to achieve a hassle-free marriage. And what are we usually in for? A hassle-free marriage. But that's not what God's goal is. Instead, he goes on and he says, But it is to inspire repentance unto godliness. This is what we're seeking to do, both in our own lives and to help our husbands in their lives as well. So often when we confront our husbands, it flows from an attitude of selfishness. We don't like his sin because it disrupts our life. It's unpleasant. It's inconvenient. It's annoying. It's frustrating. And on and on and on. For all these reasons, our motives for confronting his sin become more about alleviating our discomfort, our hurt, our pain, our inconvenience, you name it, as a result, our goal has nothing to do with helping him be restored in his relationship to God. It is about making him stop what we don't like. This is a sinful and selfish motivation. Instead, we need to be motivated by love. And you remember what 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. All that means confronting our husbands needs to be done in love. And I have tried to not every week go back to 1 Corinthians 13 because I think I pretty much could all the time as we talk about need to loving the need to love our husbands. But I am going to look at that this week because I do feel like this is this is helpful to think through it this way. So I'm going to just read the passage first and then kind of break it down a little bit. So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. So think about it, and as I'm reading this, think about it in the context of confronting your husband. So love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. When we confront our husbands, We are not supposed to be seeking our own if we are truly loving them. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So I'm just going to take some of the the phrases, not all of them, but some of the phrases and kind of go through them for just a second. So if we think about how we are to use love as we confront our husbands. So as we confront them, we should exercise first, right out the gate. What do we exercise? Patience. That means it may not be a quick fix. If you are anything like me, when your husband sins, you want him to stop yesterday. So I do not have patience for you to continue this habit. Okay, I'm back to fleshly living again. Now I'm disqualified again. This means, uh, oh, excuse me, we may need to pray for him and wait for God to work in his life. We may have to wait for the right opportunity. We may need to be patient during the conversation, particularly if it is hard for him to hear what we have to say. Even in that conversation, if he is responding poorly to that, which do you guys always respond just oh yes honey, thank you for sharing that. I see how I'm such a sinner. No, typically what we do, well, I'll speak for myself. Typically, what I can tend to do is he'll confront me in something, and what's my first response? Like I have to, I have to so work so hard to counsel my heart be humble, listen, (laughs) because my natural sinful tendency is to be offended and to be like, what are you talking about? What do I want him to be toward me in that moment? I want him to be patient toward me. Give me time to hear what you've had to say and for the Holy Spirit to work in my heart so that i will respond well. Well, that's exactly what I need to be giving to him is patience in that conversation if he doesn't immediately fall on the ground dust and ashes because he's sinful. So then we need to be kind considering how our words, expressions, ooh, that can be scary, right? Tone of voice, our examples we bring, how all of those things may come across to him. Do they demonstrate love, care, concern? And think about love does not brag. I, I'm so appalled sometimes as I put these things together in my mind and I think, oh, I can see how I've done that. A loving wife will not brag about her own lack of struggle in this area. Anybody relate? Or use herself as a good example of how he should act. (laughs) Anybody relate to any of that? Okay, so here's the thing. Maybe you didn't say it, but did you think it? Our minds get us in trouble too. She will not seek her own agenda. Rather, she will endeavor to help her husband do what is pleasing to God, even if it requires sacrifice on her part. She will not hold his sin against him, even when they have had the same conversation every month for the last year. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. It's not easily provoked. She will forgive him, not becoming bitter. She will continually believe the best of his motives, she will not give up on him, and she will continue to bear the burden of his sin as she strives to help him grow in godliness. And girls, that's where it really gets hard. When we have to bear the burden, the weight, the consequences even, of his sin at times. And we do, as does he for us. We can never, we can never only just point at him, because marriage is a two-way street, two people going at it, right? Right? We are just the same toward him. So Martha Peace offered some helpful instruction when confronting our husbands. If we truly desire to be used by God to help restore our husband to fellowship with the Father, there are some practical things we can implement into our conversation. And I just thought some of these lists were good, and that's basically what your outline is, is all these different lists, because I wanted you to be able to take them home and refer back to them if you wanted to. So she says, uh, small a on your outline, choose the right time. The wrong times are when you are in front of others, when you have a sinful attitude or when he can't, uh, or when he cannot give you his undivided attention. The right times are when you are alone, when you are feeling well and rested. There's plenty of time. Oh, and that's another thing. When there's plenty of time to talk and you are in control of yourself and reliant upon the Holy Spirit and God's word thought that was just a good synopsis there of thinking through the right time to bring up something that needs to be discussed. Timing is very, very important. And then she says, B, choose the right wording. Proverbs twenty-five, to, or excuse me, 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. So as we're considering the right wording, we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to give us wisdom to know what to say. We need to be searching the scriptures so that we are speaking things that are accurate. We need to be searching our own hearts. Are there there things in my heart that are sinful that are causing me to take unneeded offense at what just happened? Am I misunderstanding the situation? We need to be very careful. It can even be helpful at times, if you need to, to write it out. Martha P. suggests writing it out so that you can think through very carefully what you're going to say. So then C, praise him for what you can before you give the reproof. And this is just confirmation that you love him, that you are for him, before you go ahead and just jump in to what you're going to say. Try and preface it with love and kindness and grace. D, be specific regarding his sin and offer a biblical solution. So one of the things, even in our own lives, if we are just so general with our own sin, we're going to have a really hard time going after it. We need to know, this is one of the reasons why I am adamant that we need to use biblical terms. And whenever I am counseling, this is always what we're trying to do. Okay, so whatever the world has labeled that thing, we need to take that thing and see what is that in Scripture. Okay, this is the word for that thing in Scripture. So like a week and a half ago or whenever it was, Ron was teaching the Becoming One Sunday School class, and he was talking about fear. And he had this book. I don't remember. It may have been, anyways, the medical book for psychology, book, I don't know what it was, but anyways, had all these different worldly names for fear. A book, he's turning page after page after page. You can't imagine how many syndromes and diseases and all of this that are out there for fear. So what are all those things? All these different names? Fear. And fear is sin. And so we address that. We don't need all the psychological words that go along with it. So, when we are confronting our husbands, we had better be using Scripture so that we can specifically talk about what the sin was. How is he going to know if it's just this vague thing that's out there? And we need to, like I said before, use Scripture. Because, you know what? The things we have to say don't have any value, really unless they are mirroring the truth of Scripture. So E, communicate a spirit of unconditional love. So Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This needs to be our goal is to speak the truth in love. So in order to encourage restoration, we need to be characterized by an attitude of gentleness. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness is what our text says. So three is practice an attitude of gentleness. So I am using Chris's definition of gentleness taken from his book, Blessed. If you guys have not read that book, go get it tonight before you leave and take it home and read that book on the beatitudes it is fabulous but anyway this is his definition gentleness is the holy spirit empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise god's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish his purposes to accomplish god's purposes Cultivating the fruit of the spirit of gentleness enables us to apply the appropriate pressure to help others walk in obedience to God's word. While we do not want to be forceful, we also do not want to fail to apply the level of pressure necessary to help accomplish God's purposes. We need to have this this Holy Spirit-empowered fruit of the spirit, gentleness So that when we confront our husband, we know how much pressure to apply, when to apply it, when to step back. If we are not controlled by the Spirit, we are not going to be gentle. And then our confrontation is just going to be a mess. True biblical gentleness is only enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. A person walking in the flesh could not obey this aspect of the instruction because gentleness, as I already said is the product of the spirit-filled believer. It is not the product of a fleshly believer. If you do not practice gentleness, you would be disqualified as a spiritual person who is called to confront, which would then disqualify you from confronting your husband at this time. It is important to keep in mind that the person who does not practice gentleness is unqualified to confront the sinning believer. So basically, we look at the fruit of the Spirit. If I'm not self-controlled, if I don't have love, if I'm not kind, if I'm not gentle, if I'm not patient, all these things, I am disqualified to be confronting anyone at this time. It is essential for us to be guided by the Spirit and thus practicing the fruit of the Spirit when we confront our husbands. To confront Him in our sin, expecting Him to follow our standard and expectations, mirrors the heart of the hypocritical legalists. So again, this is Warren Wiersbe, and he says, The Spirit-led believer approaches the matter in a spirit of meekness. Uh, Meekness and gentleness are sometimes used interactively. Uh, meekness, and love, while the legalist has an attitude of pride and condemnation. The legalist does not need to consider himself because he pretends he could never commit such a sin. But the believer living by grace realizes that no man is immune from falling. He has an attitude of humility because he realizes his own weaknesses. This is the attitude that we confront our husbands as we realize we are only one decision away from being in the same place, being sinful. Dave Harvey writes this, a meek or gentle person sees the futility of responding to sin with sin. How is my sin going to help you get out of your sin? It doesn't. But we do deceive ourselves into thinking that you are the one at fault. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do because you're the one at fault. But a gentle person understands. A spirit-filled person understands this. And we need to keep this in mind as we confront. So we have... um, Oh, okay. So Dave Harvey then provides three helpful considerations so that we can evaluate if we are approaching our husbands with an attitude of gentleness. So number one, he says, being annoyed is not an invitation to speak. So just because you feel annoyed does not mean you should open your mouth. Remember uh, what? Who was it? Oh, Rachel referred to it on Friday. But remember when Jody Ware was here and she said, before you speak, take a sip, think first. Stop yourself from talking. So number two, a soft answer has more power than a wrathful tongue. So Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And number three, gentle speech encourages life, whether in conversation or in conflict. So Proverbs 15.4 says, A soothing tongue... It can also, that word soothing can also be translated healing or gentle. So a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. So two concerns that women often have regarding confronting their husbands in their sin is God's instruction. So I'm kind of just, this doesn't necessarily really fit here, but I'm putting it here anyways, just as we're talking about Um, gentleness and the fruit of the Spirit and all of that. I'm just kind of tacking this on here. But I did want to address this because I do think it is a place where we do have questions. So um, let's see. Uh, It involves God's instruction for wives to submit to their husbands and to respect their husbands. So these are very important commands in Scripture, but when our hearts are motivated by love and guided by the Holy Spirit, our attitude will reflect a submissive heart, and a respectful attitude toward our husband. So confronting our husbands in their sin can be conducted in a respectful manner when it is conducted in gentleness, in a spirit-controlled heart. Our words, our demeanor, our tone of voice, our countenance can display respect for his God-given role of leadership in the home. So just because they are sinful and we have to respect does not mean that all of a sudden now we can uh, eliminate having to be obedient to the passage that we're looking at today. This passage, Galatians six one, the one that we are looking at, it instructs all believers, those who are spiritual, to confront the one in sin. So God's Word always works together. So if all of a sudden we are thinking, well, I can't confront my husband because how would I do that respectfully or that would be disrespecting him... That is a wrong way to think about it. It would be disrespecting him to confront him in a sinful manner. It is respectful to confront him with a spirit-filled heart. To not confront his sin would be more disrespectful because it would demonstrate a lack of care for his character and relationship with God. So then we move on to submission. To confront him in his sin does not indicate a lack of submission on our part. If he is sinning against his God, he must be called to repentance by a wife who is gentle and loving, caring for his soul. Confronting his sin does not prevent submission. And, and I know always the question is well, so what does that look like? When, is there ever a time when a woman doesn't submit to her husband? The only time she doesn't submit to her husband is if he is asking you to do something that is in direct violation to the clear teaching of Scripture. At that point, you would not submit to your husband because you are submitting to the Word of God. But in all other cases, we submit to them. And it doesn't, again, the submitting and the confronting don't knock heads. They go hand in hand together because that's how Scripture is. Scripture complements each other. We have to have a broad knowledge of Scripture to know how to apply it. So our very last phrase in our passage, moving on here, is C, carefully consider your own potential for sin. So looking, it says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So we are all prone to sin. We wrestle against it every day of our lives. It is quite mind-boggling for us to think that we would ever have an arrogant attitude toward another person when they sin because we ought to be looking at our own hearts and seeing how often we are sinful. In light of our tendency to respond out of our sinful flesh, Paul gives a strong warning and he says, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Looking is a strong word meaning to observe or to consider. It is a present tense verb emphasizing a continual, diligent attentiveness to one's own purity. We are constantly evaluating our own hearts, considering, am I being sinful? Am I being tempted towards sinfulness and am I giving into it? Scripture is full of warnings regarding our need to be humble and to not think we are above sin. And just very quickly, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We need to be very careful that we are not arrogant in our own view of ourselves. So as we are thinking about how to confront our husbands when they sin, I think it would be helpful to evaluate our responses to our husbands when they confront us in our sin. Since this passage informs us to look to ourselves when we are confronting others, we should look to our own attitude when we are confronted. So how do we respond? And there's just four questions here. So number one, I guess, first is do I respond sinfully when confronted. And then there's four questions under that. And these are taken from Martha Peace again. And I'm just going to read through these really quickly because we're out of time. But I, I think you need to fill in your blanks. So number one, or small a, do you become angry and lash out at him when he confronts you? That would be a clear indication that you are responding sinfully. Proverbs 13:10. through insolence or pride comes nothing but strife. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. B, do you feel hurt, resentful, and unforgiving when you are confronted? Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And C, do you focus on the things he is doing wrong? Blame shifting. We can be really good at that. Yeah, but look at you. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Matthew 7, 5 says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then D, do you suffer intense personal hurt? And we have to understand that yeah, sometimes confrontation is something that hurts us, it hurts our pride, all kinds of things. But Hebrews 12:11 says, "All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." If we think we are immune to or above others who have given into sin, we need to repent of our own arrogance. So I have left, and I knew I was going to run out of time. So I've left those last few points there on your outline. How should I respond when confronted? So you guys can just take those home and look at that little list. Uh, That was taken from Martha Peace as well. So biblical confrontation is always going to be motivated, should always be motivated by a heart that desires what God desires That means we will set aside our own personal desires, preferences, and selfishness to help our husbands be restored back to a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father. So let's go ahead and close in prayer.